any good thing in your life that you don't turn to praise often becomes pride. Think about that. Often, the good things that God blesses us with or we experience, we can often find ourselves in a spot of taking too much credit for it. And it kind of gets twisted. So think about it. Culturally, this is very true. We end up seeing how when things happen in, in a job, at home, in life, we can overestimate our contribution to success. And it, it happens. We tend to grab credit even when it's not really directly tied to us or we're loosely associated with it. We'll, we'll see this happen all the time all around us. We overestimate our contribution to success. There are often factors far outside of us that play into it. I'm kind of living in the middle of one of those experiences right now. Uh, on Wednesday, Johanna, my wife, flew um, to be gone for a week to hang out with some girlfriends. She's, she's having a great time, and I'm watching the kids. So, they're laughing. Come on, I can handle this. I don't know where they are right now, but... Oh, there's, there's Cadence. All right, yes, there she is. Good. She's fine. So... Two months ago, three months ago, when we planned this, I said, well, let's, let's plan a time where you can head out with your friends, and this will be great, and, and I'll do some things here, so you can do this for a week, and, and I'll watch the kids, and like, that's a great idea, and then very quickly realized, it's a terrible idea, Nick needs some help. So what we did is, as we got closer and closer, we realized, okay, we need to call some friends and grandparents and pull some people together to make this all happen, and so sure enough, as Wednesday comes, and my wife flies away, I'm waving goodbye, instilling confidence on her, and going, uh-oh, but then on this side, praise God for help. And, you know, there's been crazy things that have happened since Wednesday. School for Cadence has been delayed, and so two hours late. So friends came in and helped take her to school when I wasn't able to with, with work and things. And um, I've already spent uh, two nights at the grandparents' house. It's only we're half, we're three to four days into this. Now, it's amazing how many people come together and rally around it. But what's going to be the story in two to three years? Remember that time when you flew to Europe and I watched the kids? That's going to be the story, right? Not all the friends that were there and all of the help from the grand. It's going to be, yeah, you went to Europe and I watched the kids. Generally true, but it's amazing how we grab some of the credit for things. It's just wired into us. We experience this. And, and now, more pointedly, as followers of Jesus, here's where it can go. We can too closely correlate our actions and God's blessing. This is dangerous. We can, we can think subtly, if I read the Bible over and over and over and this good thing happened, I kind of like earned it. I got some gold stars on my chore chart for God. And, and we get into this thinking that it's, it's damaging, that's not helpful. We'd never, we'd never say it directly like that, but it can seep into our thinking. And this to an extreme can cause all kinds of confusion in how we relate to Jesus. It can mess up our thoughts of God if it's left unchecked. And we can start to negotiate in our prayer life and, and say, God, if, if I do these things, can you provide this? Or if, I, if, you know, if I'm, I've been really good for a few days, can you pull through on this? Or I know I didn't study for this test, so brilliantly fill my mind so I can pass it. I'll study next time. I know I don't deserve this promotion, but if you give it now, I'll work really hard on the other side of it. And it can really start causing some real issues in how we relate to God and think of, of him. And so our, our passage today is going to speak into this as, as God is using Moses to speak to his people. And here's the tension I think we see surface in the passage. It's this, that when things go well, we tend to overestimate our role. And then when things go poorly or go bad, we abdicate any responsibility. 
So how are we to view the ups and downs in our life? How do we relate to God in, in this? How, how do we live in this? And so our passage today is a direct caution to the nation of Israel to not overestimate their worthiness, their righteousness, as they're about to enter the promised land. So how are we to respond in these moments of small victories in our life? What do we learn from the nation of Israel? So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter nine, and we're gonna step into to our passage today. Let's look how God warned his people in this very area. Deuteronomy chapter nine, starting in verse one, say, it says this. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. We'll stop there for a moment and then pick up in a minute. But as we look back at this, those, those first words of, of verse one, hear, O Israel. Here's, here's, this is a, a continuation of Moses speaking to the people before they enter the promised land. So if you've been reading through Numbers and Deuteronomy, and as you get into this, it starts to feel like you're reading some of the same things again. It's not amnesia. You're not rereading the same thing. You're right. So here's, here's where we are in our story. We're right, right here in Deuteronomy 9. The people of Israel are right on the edge of Canaan, about to enter into the promised land. And they've been here before, 40 years prior. And so Moses, 40 years prior, God used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt miraculously providing signs of wonders of seeing how great God is. And then through the miraculous part of the Red Sea to come to this place of provision and there they then cross the desert wilderness in about 11 days and as they're at the edge of Canaan, 40 years prior to this text, they send spies in. And we read about this in Numbers and we look through this and you send those spies in to spy out the land that God had promised. And those spies come back and they report to the people, the land is full of giants, which is what verse two here says, you've heard, you've heard prior, the land is full of giants. It's, it's, it's just fortified cities and massive. It's impossible. But two, Joshua and Caleb stand boldly and go, no, God has provided. He can provide anything in the, in the future, but they don't listen to them. And so in judgment for their unbelief and unfaith in God to provide the promised land, for the 40 days they were spying out the land, they were then judged 40 years they would wander in the wilderness. And that unfaithful generation that was on the cusp of entering the promised land would die and the following generation would enter the promised land. So we're now 40 years from that original encounter. We're now sitting right again at the edge of the promised land, about to enter into Canaan. And this passage here in verse one says, today you're gonna go in. And so Moses is giving his final speech to the people. God is using him to speak to his people one last time before they go into the promised land. So Deuteronomy recounts much of what we've already heard in Numbers. But the way, the reason it recounted, it's a new generation that's hearing. The older generation has now died away. And so they're now recounting the wonders of how God has provided. The law is recounted, the sacrifices, and why the, the heart that God desires of his people are recounted throughout this book. And so this 
is a spot where Moses is speaking to them and saying, you are about to go into the promised land. And last time they were told this, they went, before they went in, they didn't because they were fearful. So look what God speaks to his people through Moses in, in verse three. He says, remember who goes before you. Remember who goes before you. Look at, look at verse three. Know therefore that today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. Consuming fire is how God is described. My wife's from Australia, and if, if you've seen the news recently at all of what's happened in Australia, massive, massive fires. So when I think of consuming fire, I just start to think of the, the scale and the devastation of these, these fires that have taken place in Australia. And if you're not familiar with it, you can just do a quick Google search, and you'll see these images and, and uh, photos come up and read newspaper reports. And um, there's some reports that I read where there's flames, and I don't even know how this works, but I saw pictures with flames over 100 feet tall, just massive. And the heat some scientists have, have calculated as it's moving through places is probably better described as melting things than actually burning them with temperatures as high as 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit just massively consuming fires. And the scale is huge. The center of the crisis in, um, in Victoria, New South Wales, has over 16 million acres burned. And the scale of this is outrageous. I mean, that's the size of West Virginia. In contrast, the devastation of the California fires in 2018 was about two million square miles. Last September, the Amazon, in the, Amazon the forest fires there were about 2.2 million acres. So eight times that scale, and you have this massive fire burning, an unrelentless, unrelenting the way that it burns through. So think of, think of the authorial intent here of how Moses would use this term of a consuming fire. The nation of Israel is about to step into Canaan, and they're about to go into war with nations they know they can't defeat, and yet God is described as a consuming fire that goes before you. Oftentimes we use words for God like he's powerful or he's strong, Yes, that's very true, accurate. But the vividness of language of a consuming fire to give confidence stepping into battle is powerful here. Why would the Israelites fear? Fear begins to melt away when you realize the small scope of who you are in the presence of this massive blazing fire. When you think of God's power in that way, why would any of us fear? I think that's why Paul would say in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? When we have this majesty of God in mind, it, it dwarfs everything around us in a way that it can cause fear. Because fear, fear is always a danger to God's people. It's not because of the Israelites' strength or their righteousness that they will go in to possess the land here. The battle belongs to the Lord, and our task is simply to trust him. Like David in his youth before Goliath, like the Israelites here before Canaan, us as we trust God and rest on his promises. What is insurmountable to us, to humankind, is often of no consequence to God. And this is far more reassuring than simply just wishful thinking. This is, this is an undaunted confidence that God will fulfill his promises. We read scripture, we know what Jesus calls us to live by, and we rest confident on his promises. Now, there's a clear pattern that we see of how God's people respond and act. There's often this fear right before an insurmountable challenge. But then on the other side, God's people often take far too much credit. So Moses is aware of this and warns them. He's trying to curb both issues in his writing here. Look at verse four, it continues on. 
So he's already reminded them, you're gonna go in. God is great. He is powerful. He will do this now. Look at verse four. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord, the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. <laughs> it's Moses' last sermon, right? He's gonna tell it like it is. You have been stubborn for years. He's like, he knows this. We, we see this in the nation of Israel. It's not because of their righteousness, but it's because God has chosen them. It clearly, as they're heading, the Canaanites have advantages that everybody realized would prevent Israel from conquering them. It's clear. They've seen it. Everybody around knows it. But God will subdue the Canaanites for Israel. And when Israel sees that it's won this victory with the divine aid, it may mistakenly conclude that it's earned God's favor. Because no, no. That is called pride and arrogance. That twists a blessing from the Lord. It twists it into an expectation or it's as if something I've done causes me to deserve it. And this would have been shocking and humbling and it squarely emphasizes Israel's election on the basis of grace alone. The whole point here is that all people, Israel included, are wicked and undeserving of divine favor. God is sovereign over all Nations, And he has chosen a family, Abraham, to create a nation from, and he will use them as he wills. And this, this happens today, and we see this. Ephesians, God is the same today. In Ephesians 2, it's, it's the same thing that continues. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. None of us stands here deserving the grace that God has bestowed on us, and yet God in sovereignty lavishes that towards us. When God grants us favor, we can quickly pivot from praise to expectation. It's so easy subtly to start building our minds as we start to follow God and live in holiness and do things that he's called us to do, to start subtly thinking that we deserve or we earned. But no, any good thing that happens in our lives, how quickly we should turn that to praise so it doesn't begin to build a pride in our heart. Now, there's a question that I've kind of been avoiding, so we're gonna hit it straight on on this passage. If you've been reading through, you can think as you read through this passage, okay, so the situation is that Israelites are right on the edge of Canaan and they're going into this nation or this land and they're gonna wipe out these nations. What about the nations already living there? Like, how is it just that the Israelites who are wandering get to go in and just wipe out nations? How, how, does that, how does that work? There's already people inhabiting the land. Now, let's think about who the nations are in Canaan for a minute. Because sometimes we get this incorrect view in our head of, of a lovely neighborhood in Canaan of these people that are, are waking up and as they're waking up, they're 
getting out of their beds and slipping on their slippers and walking out to their, their uh, kitchens and have a nice pour over coffees and invite the neighbors over and share with people and step out to their white picket fences and nice little lawns that they have and they share with one another in the PTA and they're making sure that their neighborhoods are, are clean and you know, they recycle everything. And so they're just these wonderful people that are just inhabiting this land and then whack, Israel comes in. And we kind of sometimes get this picture, we're like, how is this fair? But let's, let's look at what was really taking place in Canaan. In chapter 12, we'll look at this more later, but I just want to read one verse there. It speaks of some of the practices in Canaan. In Deuteronomy 12, 31, it says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, speaking in the way the Canaanites were worshiping their gods. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Child sacrifice was a regular part of the culture. And we're repulsed by that. We should be. This is a pagan, evil practice. But sadly, it shows up in different ways today. And we may try to cover it with other, you know, apparently virtuous type of things. But cultures around the world and even here in the States, you see horrendous things in the way kids are treated and other behaviors that we would say, this is not how God intended worship. And so here, these ancient pagan practices were a big reason God was using the nation of Israel to judge them. God is sovereign over all nations, not just Israel, but also other nations. And at times he'll use other nations to judge his people. And now here we see a clear evidence of God using the nation of Israel to judge the Canaanites and their evil practices and the way they're behaving as nations. Now, here in chapter nine, as Moses is speaking and telling his people and God is telling him, as you go in, wipe out all of these nations. If you read ahead, many of you have, good. <laughs> read the Bible, all of it. But as you read ahead, you begin to realize they didn't do what God had commanded here. And the challenge is because they didn't do that, some of those evil practices of surrounding nations started to infiltrate the nation of Israel itself. And so later generations would start taking on some of these practices. And so I wanna read just several other passages that speak of, of later generations of some of what was starting to take place because the people didn't actually apply fully what God had called them to do here. So later in 2 Chronicles 28.3, the evil king Ahaz emulated these evil practices. Here's what it says. It says, King Ahaz, he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnomon and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. They started adopting these practices. And 2 Chronicles 33, 6 speaks of the young King Manasseh who became king at 12. It says, he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnomon and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with medians and with necromancers he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Later, the, the prophets would speak against this evil practice, both within the nation of Israel and also of surrounding nations. And so Jeremiah, Lord would speak through him and say this. And in Jeremiah 7, it says, they have built the high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnomon, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. This was not how God called his people to worship. This was a reason that God's people would judge the, the nations within Canaan at this time. And so in 2 Kings, it, it speaks of King Josiah, who would be a, a king later that would bring back proper worship. 
It says, and he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnomen, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech to restore proper worship. So the people living in Canaan would be driven out because their practices were evil. And God wanted his people to participate in none of it. The worship of God is to look nothing like what these other nations were doing. And so that is why here in Deuteronomy 9, Moses tells them to fully drive the people out. Here he tells them to drive them out. It's a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a fulfillment of his promise. It's a judgment of the the Canaanites who are living there for their evil practices we've just described. And then it's to establish true worship and sacrifice that's that's in contrast to those nations around us. And so Deuteronomy 12 starts to explain more fully that. So flip over to that passage, just a couple of pages ahead in your Bible, and, and let's elaborate more fully on what is the proper worship. How are we to step into this place? Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse one, says this. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice. I love that. In worship, there's a joy. You and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So here now, in contrast, your worship is to be different than the nations around you. You don't worship by offering babies and kids to God's desiring larger crops. This is not what's to be the practice of the people of God. Don't adopt unquestioning the evil practice of those around you. Those nations sought to adopt those practices. Those nations around them sought to do these different sacrifices to try to gain favor with their gods. So everything they would do would be to try to gain that favor. He says, it's not so. It's not so with you. So in an overly simplistic comparison, go with me here a little bit, but not too far. In an overly simplistic comparison, that pagan worship and trying to desire something might look a little bit like filling out a college application versus proper love letter, okay? Stick with me a little bit, right? A college application, what do you do when you fill out a college application? You try to make yourself look really impressive. Here's all my volunteer hours, here's all my grades, here's everything I've done, let me write this to try to earn from you a spot in your school and see if I can get something from you. You quite possibly could be rejected, which is why we're a little syncretistic in our applications. We send it to lots of schools, Maybe I'll get into one. Maybe my grades aren't great. So instead of focusing on my grades, I'll say, let me tell you my vision for my future. And then you write this incredible vision for your future. And maybe they'll let me in based on that. So you try to figure out, build your merits and whatever it is. You don't have that. You try to write something great because you want something. You're trying to get something in the college application. 
You know, if, if, you're at, if you've been to that spot, you don't necessarily get these letters from the colleges that come to your house that are trying to solicit you to go to the school and you don't write them back and go, wow, so glad you were thinking of me. <laughs> no, they're not thinking of you. They want your money. So you're in this spot if you're trying to get something from them. This college application is very different. I think you would agree. It's very different than a love letter. I mean, think about a, a love letter and the way it's written, and it, it changes over time. And when you're dating, that you'll, you'll, even in this time of texting and emailing, you might actually write something on paper and get a hand cramp. Because like, you really care about this. You want to do it right. You'll figure out how to do a stamp and a mail, and you talk to your parents to figure out what that was really like to do. But you heard that's important. You start to do things when you're dating that you're figuring out how you connect with this other person and moves from a, an infatuation and love and this engagement period where often you just can't wait and there's this excitement and vision of what could be together and you're working some things out and then you're newly married and as you're walking through this and you're, the way that you communicate and you write to one another is continuing to build trust and this covenant is there that's strong. And, and my, my wife and I, we, we dated long distance for about nine months. She was in Australia and I was here and, and during that time we'd write back and forth emails so a couple of years into our marriage, I asked, hey, do you want to look at some of those old letters we wrote? And she's like, Nick, I deleted those emails. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I saved them. <laughs> so, oh, well. So, you know, some of them are more, better written than others. But for some of you that are good writers, maybe you've kept them. But there's this spot where they, they grow and develop and, and picture the, the letters written of those who have been married 20, 30, 40 years that have a solid biblical marriage of covenant of understanding what it means to help one another walk in holiness, to fully serve and love and think of the other first and in a, a mutual relationship, how beautiful that is to years down the road, the letter, the words that are spoken back and forth, it's built on trust. It's nothing about earning or bargaining or getting, but, but they've learned over time that when they think of the other, there's a response. And so with our worship, not that we would try to get something from God, but, but worship would be in a way that the psalmist would say, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. There's a response to what God has done towards us that puts us in a place of, of praise. And so at times it will flow easily. At other times it's a decision of the heart because we know that God is worthy. And that is how our worship is to be distinct from those around us. We're not getting something, we're not bargaining, but it's in response to what God has done. And so any good thing in our life that we don't quickly turn to praise can often start to build prideful parts in our heart we have to be watchful for. So worship is our response to God, not simply as an investment hoping for that return someplace in the future, but it's a response because of what God has done. Look at the caution later in the chapter that God would write with to them. Chapter 12, verse 29 to the end. It says, when the Lord, your God, cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? That I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. We read this already. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So how do, how do we respond? How is our worship different 
than the culture around us. Israel very clearly is called to be distinct from those nations, and we can at times see it in a distance more easily, but in our own lives, how are we different in the way that we worship? How is our response to Jesus different than those around us? Are we quick to be grateful? Again, the language in chapter nine of our God is a consuming fire, and you think about his majesty and our place next to him starts to remind us of how small we are, and yet the graciousness with which God has loved us. And if instead of the graciousness, maybe you sit in a spot more identifying with Canaanites or those that are in a spot that, no, you don't have a relationship with God and you're distanced from God, and so is, is there only judgment? The beautiful thing is what John speaks about of God's love, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus. And then Paul would say in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's in that place, this gracious gift, we're grateful for. We don't earn, we don't deserve, we don't check off some boxes and then we get there and God finally did what was on his end of the bargain. No, but instead we're grateful because of what God has initiated. And this is good news. Now, for others, the caution is if you've been following Jesus for years, and maybe 40 years ago, you taught a class on the gospel and you feel like you could stand up and just share all different things and you can go through the Romans road and you've done the four spiritual laws and, and it, and it kind of gets in this spot where for some of you, you don't even know what I'm talking about, but for others of you, it's like, it can get kind of dull. Let us not be in that place. If you've experienced the gospel, regardless of the time, it's still good news because Christian, you did not earn one bit of your salvation. So once again, let us read Ephesians 2 and praise God for this truth. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one can boast. So every good thing that God does in our hearts and our lives, beginning with the gospel, the salvation of our hearts and lives are as an opportunity for us to return praise to God. To not let prideful arrogance build in our heart, but instead to worship God in response to what he's done for us. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. I hope for us this week, as we walk through this week and considering this passage here, would we, would we learn from the Israelites as they're about to enter the promised land with this warning? Don't be too... Don't be too quick to take credit for what God has done. I mean, watch out, Israel. That's gonna creep in for us this week as we walk through our week and things pop up in our life, small things. Let us be, as Thessalonians would call us to, in continual prayer and a response to God that's, that's grateful, that we would be known as a people that are quick to say thank you, not be in a spot of I deserve, I expect, I deserve, I expect, but God has given so much. Let us find ourselves in a spot of responseful wor response of worship and praise. Let me pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can, we can read this together. We can gather. God, I, God I, I want to be, we want to be a people who say thank you. God, people who are never greedy, who live with a, a wonder and an awe of who you are, that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, that we worship you in truth and spirit. God, that we're never defined by an arrogance that can creep into our hearts. But God, when our mo in our moments of small daily victories, 
But do we find moments of praise? God, in those moments of disappointment and heartache, God, would we still worship and recognize your sovereignty in our life? God, you are powerful, a consuming fire, and may our fear of boldly standing for holiness in your name melt away as we recount your faithfulness to past generations, and even in our own lives as we reflect. Thank you, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word that we can read as a steady reminder of who you are and of our hope to come. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.